At first, it was just one sheep per day. But as the deadly dragon grew more powerful, he demanded more and more. Soon it was the people of Silene themselves, so intense was his insatiable hunger, his desperate desire for more and more. Until, until one day a courageous knight named George agrees to confront the dragon. After a long and bloody battle, George finally defeats the cruel beast, saves the princess, and rescues the town. With what weapon did George slay the dragon? A spear? A lance? A sword? Maybe, just maybe, the dragon was slain by love. Welcome to Slain by Love, your weekly sermon podcast from the pulpit of St. George's Episcopal Church in Austin, Texas. In the name of the living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Y'all please be seated and good morning. In 1982... Uh, the British new wave band Naked Eyes came out with a great hit. It hit the number one spot on the charts and stayed there for several, several weeks on end. Uh, it goes like this. You made me promises, promises. Not bad. Now, some of y'all remember that way better than I do. Thanks be to God for my older sister. When you have an older sibling, it really helps with stuff like this. Some of you don't remember that at all. You're like, uh, what, what, Father Matt? Yeah. It's an amazing song. The lyrics to that song go like this. Never had a doubt in the beginning. Never had a doubt. Trusted you, trusted you in the beginning. I loved you right through. Arm in arm, we laughed like kids at all the silly things we did. You made me promises, promises, knowing I'd believe. Promises, promises, you knew you'd never keep. That song is about promises. Promises made, promises left unkept. Now... Dear friends, on this fifth Sunday in Lent, in our collect of the day, we hear about promises, do we not? Almighty God, give your people grace to desire what you promise. Again, Almighty God, give your people grace to desire what you promise. Y'all, here is my question this morning. What is it that God has promised us? This is the question that I would like for us to sit with this morning. This is the question I would like to sit with this morning one week before we enter into the darkest season of the church year, one week before we begin to stare into the blackness of human evil and sin, one week before we stare into the void one week before we collectively shout, as we will next Sunday, crucify him, crucify him. One week before all of that, I would like for us to sit with the question, what does God promise us? Because you see, the answer to that question, dear friends, is absolutely central to the Christian life. The answer to that question is what 
everything else depends. And the answer to that question is central to Lent and Easter. What does God promise us? Only one thing. What does God promise us? Only one thing. God's very self. What does God promise us? God promises us nothing other than God. God does not promise us wealth or fame or popularity or even physical health. He promises us one thing and one thing only, God's self. Here's the deal, though. Guess what's included in God? Everything. Absolutely everything. God promises us that we will receive only God himself. But guess what? That includes everything. There is nothing outside of God. All of creation is in God. Every reality that exists is in God. There's nothing outside of God. And when we receive God, therefore, guess what? We receive all things. We receive all good things. Exhibit A, Romans 8.32. He who did not withhold his own son but gave him up for us, will he not with him also give us all things. Exhibit B, Matthew 6.33. In some ways, I think that this is the theme verse of St. George's Episcopal Church. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and all his righteousness. And all these things, all these things will be added unto you. All these things, Matthew chapter 6. Based on, that, uh, on the context of that passage, guess what? That includes money. It includes food, drink, clothing, life itself. So, one more time, God promises us only one thing, God himself, but when we get God, we get everything. We get all good things. We get the whole world, but here's the deal. We get all of that wonderful stuff in God's way and in God's timing. My dad told me a story this past week of a friend of his in the D.C. area whose son-in-law, this was a, a person in his 30s, this, this young man received a terminal diagnosis. Question, does God not promise that young man all good things? Indeed, he does. But, only in God's way, only in God's timing. What I want to do now, just for the next few minutes together this morning, what I want to do now is look at our lessons this morning, and I want us to see how they give us glimpses of this, how they give us hints, maybe even whiffs of this truth, how they hint to us. By the way, I don't know if Carolyn Moreau knows how to say hint in Spanish. It's pista, una pista. God gives us hints of this truth. He gives us glimpses that what we are promised is God and that this includes all good things. First off, the word life. Now, that word life pops up in every one of our lessons this morning. Six times in Ezekiel, 
two times in Romans chapter 8 and two times in John 11. Ezekiel asks, because we're talking about life, Ezekiel asks, can these bones live? Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Paul in Romans 8 this morning says this, if the spirit of, of him, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies. Life, life, life. But y'all, the noun in Greek for life is not bios. It's not bios, B-I-O-S. None of those lessons are talking about biological life. None of those writers, Ezekiel, John, Paul, none of them use the word bios to discuss the divine life. No, the word that they all use, I know that you can guess it, but shh. See, this is a hint to us. It's a hint that what God promises us is not a this-worldly reality. What God promises to us is not first and foremost, is not merely a this-world reality. You see, bios is biological life. See, that's the life coursing through our animal bodies, this life that we as biological organisms share with all other biological organisms like live oak trees and snails and amoebas and golden retrievers and, oh, also those aliens that are supposed to arrive to Earth in the year 2024. Oh, wait, you didn't hear about that? You didn't hear about the distance, D-I-S-T-A-N-T-S, the distance who will be arriving next year? No worries, but that TikTok video has over 200,000 views at this point. See, God is not a biological organism. Now, God, as David Bentley Hart is teaching us in the Rector's book study to be resumed after Lent, God is the ground of all being. God is being itself. So question, is God alive? Yes. But the life that God has, the life that God is, is not bios, Rather, it's Zoe, Z-O-E with a house top over the E. It's a long E. Zoe. Let me hear you say Zoe. Zoe. That is the word for life in each one of the lessons this morning. Not bios, but Zoe. And it's Zoe that we are promised on the pages of the Old and New Testaments. What does God promise us? What is it that the collect wants us to desire, not first and foremost, not simply, not biological life, not biological health, but Zoe life, God's life, God's very self. Friends, this is the first hint this morning, not bios life, but Zoe life. Almighty God, grant us grace to desire what you promise not the bios of this world, but the zoe of everlasting communion with you. Now, that was the first hint. But it's very, very interesting that this word life, even though it does pop up in all three of our lessons this morning, guess where we don't see it? We don't see it in the psalm. 
Psalm 130, which begins in the same place that Ezekiel's vision begins this morning, in a valley. Ezekiel speaks of the valley into which God set him, and the psalmist speaks of the same thing, out of the depths, out of the depths, the psalmist begins. I wonder if there's anyone who feels like they're in the depths this morning. Out of the depths, de profundis in Latin, out of the depths, you have called me, Psalm 130, verse 1. You see, the psalmist was down in the dumps. The psalmist had hit rock bottom. The psalmist was experiencing the loss of both Zoe and Bios. But then, what does the psalmist say? Look with me at verse 3 in the psalm in your leaflet this morning. Look with me at verse 3. There is forgiveness with you, therefore you shall be feared. There is forgiveness with you, therefore you, should, you shall be feared. See, the psalmist does not speak to us this morning about the life of God. The psalmist speaks to us about the fear of God, the fear that he or she has for God. And what is it that motivates this fear of God? Is it that God might smite him? I mean, that would make sense, right? That would make sense to our way of thinking about things. I mean, to our fight or flight way of thinking about things. That would make sense in terms of motivation. Is that it? Is, is the psalmist fearful of God? Does the psalmist fear God because God might smite him? Does the psalmist fear God because God is holy and the psalmist is so sinful? Again, that would make intuitive sense to us, but that is not what verse 3 says. That is not what verse 3 says. It says this, I will fear you because you have forgiven me. Huh? There is forgiveness with you, therefore you shall be feared. Now that seems totally ridiculous. Normally, you're afraid of someone because they don't forgive you, right? I mean, just think about a, a convicted criminal standing before an unforgiving judge. Just talk to a fearful teenager who suffers under a violent or angry parent. Is that the picture of God we get here? Not at all. It's the very opposite. We are led to fear God, so goes the logic of the psalm, because God forgives us. Friends, that is no ordinary fear. The psalmist here is not cowering before a threatening power or an abusive authority. God here is not angry. God here is forgiving. God here is merciful. The fear of God that we see here in the psalm is a loving obedience. The fear of God that we see here is a fear that says, I'm finally coming to realize that you, O oh Lord, are the ultimate pinnacle of my life. That you, O oh Lord, are my chief end and my highest good. Friends, please listen to me. This is a fear that says, all my delight is in you. 
All my desire is for you. Wait, did I say desire? Yes, I did. I want to close like this with a third and final hint. See, I opened this sermon this morning by drawing your attention to a word, the word promise. But I want to close with another word, also in the collect, desire. Desire. Grant us, it says, to desire what you promise. Did y'all know that that word desire, there's people in the room who are new to the Episcopal Church. There's people in the room who barely know how to spell Episcopal. And did you know that that word desire is one of the most frequent words in the Book of Common Prayer? It's one of the most often occurring nouns in the collects of the day. Over and over and over again in the collects of the day, we hear of desire. We have one man to thank for this. His name was Thomas Cranmer. In our collect today, what is the object of our desire? Grant us, O Lord, the collect says, to desire what? Financial prosperity? Health? A great sex life? Successful children? No. None of these. Grant us, almighty God, to desire what you promise. And what does God promise? Nothing but God's very self. In the name of the living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Thanks for joining us at the pulpit of St. George's Austin, where the love of God in Christ slays our enemies, our fears, our guilt, our worries. How are they slain? Only by love. Special thanks to the good folks of St. George's and especially to that masterful media guru, Liam Dolan Henderson. See you next week. Peace and be well.